The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 280 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is parenting parents. Parenting your parents is family caregiving. Family caregivers who parent their parents may be adults in their prime or teenagers or even children as young as five. Or they may be retirees or seniors or they may be persons of any age who live with health challenges of their own and who are also parenting their parents. Family caregivers involved in parenting their parents may be caring for parents who are living in the family caregiver's home or parents who are living in their own homes nearby or whose homes are far distant from their family caregivers or parents who are living in some type of long-term care facilities nearby or whose long-term care facilities are far distant from their family caregivers. So how big is the community of families and family caregivers in North America? Well, if we count all types of families, the community of families is not far short of 100 million members. And if we count all types of family caregiving and all types of medical conditions that parents may be subject to, perhaps as many 30 million members of the North American community of families could at some time be involved in parenting their parents. So what is the quality of life like for parents parenting their parents? And I'm drawing on previous episodes of this show when I say what I'm about to say. Um, Parents parenting their parents sometimes experience difficulty in getting themselves recognized and their services to their parents recognized by governments and healthcare and social systems. And all too often, providing their services may exhaust them physically, psychologically, and financially. Which is why my guest, Dr. Michael Gordon's latest book, Parenting Your Parents, which focuses on aging parents, is so important. Now, Michael is a medical professor, ethicist, and one of Canada's best-known geriatricians. His book, Parenting Your Parents, was co-authored with Bart Minzenthi. Um, Michael has published several other books, including Late Stage Dementia, Promoting Comfort, Compassion, and Care, Moments That Matter, Cases in Ethical Elder Care, and his memoir, Brooklyn Beginnings, A Geriatrician's Odyssey. His work to advance the understanding of aging and ethics and end-of-life care is valued by the public and professional audiences. Born in the United States, 
His education and training span the United States, Scotland, Israel, and Canada. And he's currently the medical program director of palliative care at Baycrest Health Sciences and a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Now, Michael, please tell us a little bit more about your life, your career, and in particular, any experience you have of family caregiving. Michael? Well, you, you kind of covered the ground uh, career-wise, in short. Um, I got into geriatrics actually by accident, but it was a fortuitous accident, and fortunately for me, because two, I would say, very important life experiences. One, I was partially raised by my maternal grandmother, with whom I shared a bedroom, along with my sister, in a very small apartment. Uh, and because I studied in Scotland, I was exposed to geriatrics as a formal uh, area of medicine early on in my career, long before it existed in either the United States or Canada. For various reasons, I ended up in Canada that are not important. Uh, and during the early uh, years of my uh, professional experience here, I fell into, fortuitously, the Baycrest Geriatric Center because I was interested in doing something as close to general internal medicine rather than a subspecialty as possible. And somebody who I had met while traveling, who was a professor of medicine at the university, suggested Baycrest. I came here, and after various discussions, I ended up having an association for a period of time and then after that period, I was hired by Baycrest and Mount Sinai Hospital for a gun, conjoint appointment, which allowed me to carry on with geriatrics, which I really learned, in a sense, on the job. So that was sort of the basis of my uh, introduction to the career. And as one says, the rest is history, because I've been involved with it um, throughout uh, my professional years following uh, uh, the, those years of training. As for personal experience... As I've often said to my patients, uh, I, I've changed it now. I used to say I'm not just a doctor but a son. So now I have to say, unfortunately, I'm not just a doctor but was a son. I could also say but was a son, am a nephew, et cetera, et cetera. But I went through the caregiving challenges of my late mother and late father who had a wide range of issues that really spanned almost everything that I've done professionally. And I've learned a lot from them and a great appreciation for what goes into caregiving, especially observing my sister, who was really the frontline person when dealing with my father. So I think I come by it honestly in terms of personal experience and, of course, many years of professional experience. Which takes me to my next question. Please tell us about your medical work in geriatrics and palliative care. And maybe you could just give us a quick definition also of what palliative care actually is. Yeah. Palliative care is actually the last part of a career that spans almost every component of geriatric care, from ambulatory care, office care, outreach care, inpatient care, acute care, general hospital care, long-term care, whatever there is in the package. But palliative care is the most recent component and how I got into the unit doesn't matter, but I've been there for about seven years, um, initially as the acting program director, and then I was appointed as the medical program director. So my role is as the administrative head of a inpatient palliative care program that's directed to the elderly. 
unlike other either palliative care programs or sometimes called hospice programs, our focus is on the older adult. That's the nature of our organization. And the older adult means in addition to looking after the usual most common people in hospice and palliative care programs, which have as their medical condition malignancy, we deal with the end stages of many of the chronic diseases that affect elders from which they may also succumb beyond cancer. And one of the biggest challenges of that is dealing with end-of-life dementia care, and that's why I wrote the book that I wrote prior to this latest edition of Parenting Your Parents. Now, let's talk about Parenting Your Parents, your latest book. Um, tell, us about, tell us about it and tell us also the kind of message that you want the book to deliver. Michael. Well, we started the book with my co-author, Bart Menzenti. I think it was 2002 that the first edition came out, so we started it the year before. And it was really Bart's project to begin with, and he enticed me to co-author it with him. But the idea was to help family members who are involved in care of usually their parents, it could be spouses, and are often challenged with a wide range of medical, social issues for which the repertoire of assistance was not that robust. And there was a tendency, and Bart experienced it through his own personal experiences, of feeling a, a kind of loneliness uh, in that there wasn't a great deal, certainly not written, to assist people in that uh, situation. So we wrote the book, and the idea of the book was that I gave Bart, I think the first edition had 18, I don't remember, prototypical case stories. In other words, things that come across my office desk uh, unit very commonly. And I said, here's the typical case. You turn it into a personalized story, obviously fictitious, because we're not going around naming people who other people might recognize. So you turn it into the fictitious story using this medical construct that I gave you, and then I will respond with uh, what do I think you might do to unravel this knot. And we did it that way, and then we added some other things which people, readers, really liked, which each of us told our personal story of caregiving. And then we had some other things which were more practical, guides, finance, resources. So we did that. Then we were asked to do an update. Then we were asked, because that was a Canadian edition, both the first two, and then we were asked to do an American edition. And the way we did the American edition is we took the more recent Canadian edition and literally Americanized it. Both Bart and I have, as part of our repertoire, American citizenship. So we were able to Americanize it, which really meant the same stories, but instead of being um, uh, Toronto, it was New York. Instead of being Barry, it was Rochester. And, and suitable, appropriate um, associations you know, with the proper address. So that's what we had for a while, uh, a second Canadian edition, American edition, and then about uh, probably a little over a year ago, the uh, um, publisher said, we think, well, they think, the editor was, says, I think it's time for a new edition, but rather than doing Canadian-American, Canadian-American, can you combine it? And we thought, that's not hard. What we will do is expand it, alternate the scenarios, 
so that one's American, one's Canadian, and cover the territory because many things are really congruent. So we added more scenarios. I think we're up to 24. We continued with our personal stories because things happened from the original that included the ultimate death of, of our parents and added some more resources. So the book really became, from the point of view of the definition of a new edition, a truly new edition. Now, what I'm just going to feed back to you very quickly is the way in which your professional career, your colleagues' professional career or career, your own experience and your own knowledge and services, your knowledge of needs and your awareness of needs all kind of grew together into the book. And that's where the story is starting to come out. Now, we're going to hear much more about the kind of things that um, you are advocating in the book, the kind of things you describe. But right now, we have a little challenge in that this is the point at which we have to pay the rent. It's where we take the short break. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood. Hosted by Chris FSCU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc. G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is Parenting Parents. 
Now, Michael, let's talk about the challenges that arise in parenting of parents. So first question, Michael, please highlight the effects of the medical conditions that are especially challenging for persons as they age. Michael? Okay, so let's first reframe that. The real structure now or concept now of modern medicine is what we call chronic disease management. And this really is, in many ways, uh, a new era of medicine, very different from how I trained and even people a little younger than me, where you had many conditions which were either fatal or you didn't have good treatment. And then with the, I'll call it the miracles of modern medicine, we could now address many conditions that rather than being cured are managed. But they're managed sometimes for tens of years and decades or decades or, you know, long periods of time, and they may cause some gradual, gradual erosion of function and damage, but the person can go on living. And I give examples of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, arthritis, many conditions that in the past, and I can remember them as a young medical student and doctor, that were literally fatal, whereas now it's nothing or almost nothing to treat them. So as people are getting older now who came from that era, what they do in many ways, whether they have the best genes or not the best genes, they start collecting medical conditions that they've learned to cope with and with the proper treatment can carry on. So you may have somebody in their 80s or 90s who actually has a history of high blood pressure, previous heart attacks, maybe even a stroke, maybe this, maybe that, and yet are still not just viable, but functioning with perhaps some deficiencies. And they call on not just the medical and social service community, but often their families, especially their children, who themselves may not be that young, to treat them, to take care of them to make sure they get from A to B, to make sure they get to their medical appointments. And that becomes a major challenge even when the person doing it is very happy to do it. It's still a logistical challenge. You've got it. Look, the weather today is not great. It's balmy compared to last week. But everybody I saw in my office today came with at least two, if not more, family caregivers. Yeah. Now, let's go to the family caregivers in this next question, Michael. What are the most challenging of the challenges um, that are experienced by parents or who are being parented by family caregivers? Now, that is to say, let's focus on the parents who are being parented, but talk about their challenges, and that is to say challenges outside the medical thing, the, the man, disease management, but inside the kind of things you've just mentioned, like moving around, getting to, from one place to another. So, Michael, yeah. what do you think are the most challenging? I think the major, the major issue can all be subsumed under the concept of who am I and how do I maintain my independence? I identify myself by my independence, my ability, I'll say, to be me, to do me to do the things that I want to do. So as people lose the ability, for one reason or another, they become needy and dependent. And human beings in general, other than some very unusual pathology, do not want to depend on other people. They want to be able to do things on their own. 
so that at each step that they require some help, there is a tension. Sometimes it's such a tension that everything is rejected. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want. And I have many people like that, and it included my late father, who at one point was very resistant to what was very sane and reasonable recommendations from me and my sister, who he adored. Both of us. My sister's a social worker. I'm this famous doctor, and still he rejected because he wanted to maintain his independence. So, from the point of view of the parent, it's that struggle. One assuming that they can recognize that there's a problem, two, trying to maintain their independence in the face of the problem, and then often finally having to agree that they need help, and then dealing with the dynamics of needing help and accepting help. Now let's switch to the family caregivers themselves. What what do you see as the most challenging of their challenges, Michael? Well, I think... Being able to care for somebody you love intrinsically is not an over unreasonable challenge. Most people can come to terms, even though the logistics may be difficult between people working and family and the so-called sandwich generation, although with the number of generations now, it's probably more the Dagwood sandwich because there's more than two layers. There's three layers. People can manage most of that when things are going reasonably well in terms of the cognition and behavior of the parent. The biggest challenge, I'd say, in all of this is when the parent starts developing problems, I'll call it in the realm of cognitive impairment, dementia, especially when associated with behavioral symptoms. When that happens, unpredictable events may occur, the struggle to keep the person in a safe environment, the struggle if they happen to go into a long-term care facility, of having that long-term care facility say, we can look after him rather than we have to do something else because they're a threat to other residents. And then the families having to agree, for example, to the use of medications, which although improves the safety, changes the personality. Now, I want to just take that answer a a step further. And this is in the context of North America's increasingly diverse population, Mm. Um, the cultures, uh, the ethnicities, the language, uh, the immigration status, and those kinds of things. And what I've learned from this show is that in many of those groups, there's a strong sense of duty on the part of, uh, let's call them the children for the moment, looking after the parents. And the children can be, of course, seniors and the rest of it. And that is the sense of a cultural duty and expectation. And I'm wondering if that's something that increasing, is increasing the stress on family caregivers, and does it in those communities, and does it in any way deter them from seeking help when they need it? What do you think? Well, I think it's a mixed picture, Uh, and what I've seen over the decades that I've been involved with it, this is that, uh, I'll use the word sort of like from the the, uh, uh, Old Testament, in the beginning, yes, families tend to unite around their cultural values. Given enough experience in North America with what is required, I can talk more about Canada now than the U.S. because I haven't lived in the United States for many years, but I believe it's similar, is that as that generation begins to accept the values 
they realize that it is impossible for them to do both. You cannot be home with an aging parent as the primary caregiver at the same time that you are now the breadwinner for a family that requires two breadwinners because there are three children, all of whom are at university, whereas in the old culture situation, nobody was in university. So the world has changed. Now, the way I would say the most robust ethno-cultural communities have dealt with it, and I see this all over, let's say, um, large Canadian cities where you have a very multi-ethnic population, is once it's accepted that long-term care is not a blight, it's not evidence of abandonment, then those communities say, not only will we accept long-term care, we will make it the best long-term care you can have. And that is why for many of us in the industry, when asked, we will say, if you're going to recommend a long-term care setting, the, the, the algorithm I use is try to get a not-for-profit, ethno-culturally motivated uh, organization in which that uh, uh, sensitivity and commitment to the whatever group is, is what drives the organization. So in Ontario, in Canada now, for example, in Toronto, a stone's throw from where I sit, which is a large organization that focuses not exclusively, but uh, primarily on the Jewish population, we have one that focuses on the Italian population, because that's the uh, slightly bigger population. And then we have a whole complex of five uh, organiz- uh, five components of one organization that focuses on the Chinese population, which is very large in Toronto. Then in addition, you have a Ukrainian and a Finnish and I, I mean, I don't even know some of them because some of them are shared because there isn't enough demand from one community. They've pooled their resources. So if you can't do what they did in the old country, which fewer and fewer can once they've been acclimatized, not because they've turned into evil people, but the world is different. They now have professions and jobs and families. Then at least you say, I will make long-term care quality. And I will, they don't abandon their parents. They're very involved as volunteers and participants, but they say this is going to be a first-class place. Would you go so far as to say what, in fact, these groups that you've been, these communities that you've been describing yeah. who are setting up their own uh, facilities to suit their cultures yeah. and needs of, their, of the parents they're parenting, is that, in fact, developing... Uh, and this is a positive thing, an addition, an add-on to our normal healthcare service. Do you see it in that way? Well, it depends on where you are. And again, you know, the, the Canadian model is different from the American model. In Canada, long-term care is part of a healthcare system. Other than retirement homes and assisted living, that's another category. But nursing homes, as we would call them, or long-term homes for the aged, are all partially um, uh, funded through the government. So they are part of the healthcare system. There are co-pays, there are various ways of um, uh, supplementing the funds uh, rather than the basic insurance that we're all recipients of, but they are part of the system. Now there's also a private tier of private nursing homes, but they too are subsidized to the same level of the not-for-profit. So that the um, 
benefactor of the home has to pay a co-payment, whether they're in a not-for-profit home or for-profit home, but the government's involved. It's not purely private enterprise. And I think that has a major impact in terms of regulations and standards and expectations. Is that a good influence? Just a quick yes or no. Is that Which a useful influence? The, I'm sorry. the influence that you've just described, that is to say, what's actually happening to well, I think their health care system. Is it a good influence? It's one of the models that is developed to replace what is no longer viable, which is families staying at home for 20 or 30 years, having been educated, having to support another family to look after an older person. How could it be? Yes, it's progress in short. It's a change of a societal uh, function and values. Yep. Okay. Now, once again, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is Parenting Parents. Michael, now let's talk about help and support family caregivers parenting aging parents, which is the focus of your book. What are the most helpful of the medical treatments for the effects uh, m- of the medical conditions, that the things that you called chronic uh, disease management, what are the most helpful of the treatments that uh, care for those things that you would identify for? Okay, so that's a bit of a difficult question because there are conditions that are not symptomatic 
until something happens. Uh, and therefore, the treatment is very important, even though the person may not actually appreciate the treatment. So the best example is high blood pressure, hypertension. Most people don't know they have high blood pressure. They don't appreciate it unless they start measuring their own. They don't see the numbers. And they can go along for years not realizing they have blood pressure until they have a stroke or heart failure or something else. So that's very key. And the treatment successfully of high blood pressure, whether through medications or diet and exercise, et cetera, has been a key in decreasing the incidence and prevalence of heart disease and stroke. So that's an example. In terms of disability, one of the things that people complain is one of the highest areas of complaint are musculoskeletal. So that arthritis and it results in, for example, uh, decreased mobility because of knees and hips, inability to do housework because of hands. So therefore, treatments, and this includes medical treatments, anti-inflammatories and analgesics, and for those with severe problems of their lower um, limbs, uh, knee and hip surgery and prosthesis. I mean, I now see people in their late 80s, and they come in, and they talk, and then they bang on their knee, and they say, you hear that? And they tell me when it was done. And we know longer, it's already years, don't look at an upper age when you say you can't do this anymore. It really depends on the person, their mobility, and their general health. So we have many areas of medication that are beneficial. I mean, heart disease, we can now control the symptoms of heart disease for many, many years that when I was in training, an early physician, people were absolutely uh, immobilized. They would be literally sitting at home, huffing and puffing, unable to walk because they had no cardiac reserve. So these are the very, very common ones. The biggest challenge, however, for everyone is cognitive impairment and dementia. And the problem right now, and I don't know for how much longer, if not indefinitely, is that we don't really have any good medication that's going to change the course significantly of those conditions. Right. That's a future challenge. Now, I want to switch to support other than medical treatments. Um, most the treatments, non-medical treatments, the services, the kind of things you've already mentioned um, that are most necessary to over help overcome the challenges for things like mobility and perhaps hearing and perhaps vision and things like that. So what do you have to say about the types of support that, that are needed there? Yeah, I would say that contrary to what people may think, I do not look at medication as the single most important component of maximizing function and aging. I would put in the um, hierarchy of social support systems, uh, support systems of what we call activities of daily living so people can do as much for themselves as possible and participate in social activities because social interaction is key to human well-being so that all the programs that socialize people, all the programs that assist people in getting to places that they socialize, and that could be the transportation system, the wheel trans, all the new mobility aids that, as my late father said when he got his walk, he said, wow, this is a great design. He was an engineer. He said, my goodness, look at this, a seat, because one of the problems <laughs> is people 
who are or frail and elderly, if they go for a walk, there's no place for them to seat, sit. Somebody designed walkers that have their own seat in them. This is a phenomenal advance in a very small way. So that we have a whole range of people besides doctors, social workers, rehabilitationists, therapists, speech therapists, audiologists, all of whom assist frail elders in maximizing their function. That's the key. Whatever there is in longevity, whatever you believe in, having a quality and maximizing function, people are very, very um, flexible in how they will accommodate as long as they can do things for themselves that give them some enjoyment. In a quick technical word, it's a workaround, isn't it? That is providing them with ways to work around whatever their disabilities yeah, I mean, or limitations are. In, ma- in many ways, that's the nature of human existence. We've been working around for, I don't know, you want to say 5,000 years? Yes. <laughs> However it is, you want to get from A to B and there was no path, you went around. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to pursue this question of types of support, but this time, types of support for the family caregivers who are doing the parenting. What what are the things that you see as being most needed? Yeah, I think that's a very key question because, and that's why we wrote the book. Basically, I guess I just say, tell them to buy the book. That would be too simple. But we noticed, we recognized that many of these caregivers do not get support. They do not have resources. So the support you can mobilize besides social work and social agencies and um, discussion groups is the organizations that look after the frailing, I use the word frailing as failing and frail together, parent can also have programs, often collective programs, group programs, to help those caregivers understand the various challenges that everybody's collectively facing and share their own menu, recipe of solutions. And sometimes the solutions are simple, but they're not part of the normal repertoire of the medical psychosocial model. You know, it's not something that we may think of, and yet a family member says, you know what, if you, and then gives a little bit of a, uh, a resume of what they do, and everybody says, wow, what a great idea. So there's lots of ways of supporting the family, and one of the little dictums I have is I tell the family member who's very, very resistant to getting help, as I say, remember, if you fail, he or she fails. So we have to protect you. We can't let you fail. That means we have to find ways to keep you going with your own needs and your own quality of life. You don't have to be a hero. And you don't have to burn yourself out or exhaust yeah. yourself psychologically. Exactly. There is help for you. That's Absol- right. Isn't absolutely. Yeah. Now, I want to expand a little bit on something. Um, that is, we're talking about the, I'm going to call them the devices, the workarounds, the, 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 the things that people do, uh, families do to solve the challenges and problems. Now, what I've found on this um, talk show is that sometimes family caregivers go a stage further than that. They actually invent something uh, that's going to be helpful and become entrepreneurs. Now, I haven't heard about that so much in the area that we're talking about, that is aging, but I've certainly heard, heard about it in areas of childcare. Have you come across anything like that in the aging um, You know, scenario? I've heard of ideas, but I don't know always the genesis. But I am willing to bet whoever figured out Lifeline, that's the sort of generic term for the product, which is called Lifeline, 
which is the emergency um, uh, uh, communication system that yes. allows an older person to be alone in their home, apartment, that should something untoward happen, they can summon help. I'm willing to bet it was somebody's idea that wasn't necessarily a commercial enterprise to begin with because it's so intuitive. You have parents saying, I'm worried about my mother being alone. I wonder what I can do. And somebody whose husband or vice versa, the husband's wife is an engineer, says, I wonder if, I wonder if. And that was the genesis. But I'm willing to bet there are many, many devices, whether it's in the bathroom for security and stability or in the bedroom to keep you from slipping or the nightlight that somebody says, gee, why should we just use them for children? You know, all these things, I, I believe there's a back and forth between family members that care and have sort of intuition and people who are willing to take up ideas and commercialize them. And that's a very healthy way of mobilizing a community by saying to them, other people may benefit from the things that you've worked hard on, the things that you've found successful and helpful and the things that you would like to see um, benefit other people. That is a kind of social entrepreneurialism, a social enterprise, which seems to me very helpful to society generally and not just healthcare for the aged and things like that. What do you say to that? I agree. I agree. And that's why many of these programs that I've observed, because we've done them here, get people together who exchange ideas. And through those ideas that get exchanged, the ones that seem to work, depending on what the situation is, can be transformed into something more robust, something that you can duplicate. You know, there are people who've done, because their backgrounds are in, let's say, computers. Where do you think Skype came from? I mean, the number of elders I have now that are Skyping, their families are unbelievable. Think about it. That yes. worry about, gee, I can't get to see grandma when you say, grandma, I'm coming on, I want FaceTime. Yes. I mean, who would have thought of that a few years ago? Exactly. Now, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky and provocative here, but what I would just like to say is this. If in the groups who are discussing things that you've been talking about that they find useful and want to share ideas, if any of those ideas you think would make an, an episode of Family Caregivers Unite. I'd be delighted and, in fact, proud to give them the opportunity to talk about the things they found useful, to share their ideas, and maybe get their ideas out that way uh, in such a way that others can benefit from them and recognize who actually developed or postulated the idea in the first place. So, as I say, I don't, I'm not asking you to commit to that at this particular moment, but it's just an idea I'd like to leave with you. Be- well, I'll tell you, if somebody comes up the, with the equivalent of the Velcro solution for getting your shoes on, even though you've got severe arthritis, they deserve to have that idea um, uh, uh, universalized. Right. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and after all, Internet radio is one of those developments, isn't it? Right. So now... Once again, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Gordon. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Michael Gordon. Our topic is Parenting Parents. Now, Michael, I'd like to explore with you what more you would like to do and you would like to see done to increase help for family caregivers parenting their parents. So what more would you like to do to help family caregivers who are parenting their parents? Michael? Well, I think you could break it up into a number of domains. I mean, there's a professional domain of uh, making sure that the health and social service professionals that we depend on, that we send out there as our gladiators, are really well prepared for the issues of aging. Now, that has gradually developed in North America. It's been a bit slow on the uptake compared to Europe, for example, but it should not be possible for somebody to get their diploma degree, whatever it is, without having a reasonable, if not robust, understanding of the process of aging and the challenges. Now, if somebody says, but after all, I want to be a neonatologist, maybe we'll forgive them. Okay, but there's only a couple of them around, relatively. Most people in, I'll say, medicine, social work, the the rehab, are all dealing with older adults and up. And therefore, they should have a a robust exposure, first to the clinical issues, of course, because that's your bread and butter, but then to the social issues, the ethical issues, the organizational issues, because we don't work in a vacuum. Somebody who comes to us clinically with a medical problem often carries on the coattails another set of issues, such as ethical issues. Yes, I can do the treatment, but should I do the treatment? And should is a very complex concept. So that's at, uh, you might say, the professional interactive level. The next is at a societal level. In many ways, 
part of Part of it is our history and the fact that we are relatively, I'll use the word young, even though it's sort of a misnomer, society in terms of development and the cultures that come with that development. The actual appreciation of the challenges of aging have not really been internalized and acculturated into our societies. So we're constantly talking like it's an add-on. Oh, yeah, by the way, we have to do more for our elders. And then you say, well, what does that mean? Well, if it's going to be part of public policy, that means governmental policy, then somebody has to say, well, this is what it means. It means that, and it's usually an issue of funding, but funding is only a part of it. It means planning and recognizing what the challenges are. So we give it a simple example. We're just going through a winter in Toronto. Now, you know, you could say, well, the way we'll deal with it, we'll send everybody south. Although I know some people who were south during this last week, and the south was as cold as it was here. So obviously we're not moving people around. You say, well, what would it take to make, I'm going to use Toronto just because I went through the four days of no power, no heat, whatever. What would it make to make Toronto an elder-friendly city? What would it actually take? Where do people get into trouble getting around? Why do they get into trouble getting around? Look how long it took to make every pavement, every sidewalk have a uh, depression so you can move a wheelchair up and down. That took a long time, but it has a huge impact on people who are dependent. So you'd have to say, well, what does it mean to make it possible for people to get around? How do people get shopping if they don't have their own vehicles because they can't drive anywhere? Well, you know, the wheel trans type systems have developed. You say, are they working well enough? Is there anything missing there? You have to look at all the components. And one that has been of particular interest to me, just because of my experience, is that, for example, the general hospital system is Elder unfriendly. What does elder unfriendly mean? It's not that they don't have good clinicians who can care for elder people, but for an older person to get around and recognize and know where to go and get up and down is not easy. So one of the general hospitals I worked at, for example, had an escalator from the main floor to the first floor. Well, escalators are not elder friendly. In other words, you need a certain amount of dexterity to use an escalator. Say, okay, well, there's also an elevator. So that's great. These elevators happen to be such that if you don't catch it in time, either the door closes on you, but it's supposed to open up quickly, but it doesn't always. I mean, you can go on and on. For example, I've just been involved in a case where the subway door closed very, very um, energetically on an older person and cause serious damage, even though it's programmed to open up. So if, say, if we want older people to use public transportation, what do we do to make it elder-friendly? There's a whole range, but that takes the ingenuity of people to look at the problem, look at the situation, say, what would it take? Put yourself in the shoes of, or the walker of, or the cane of the person who's trying to get around. And that, as part of public policy, separate from the whole issue of funding, which is another challenge. How much of one's funds go into this or that? It gets to be very complex, but there are things that can and should be done at a societal level, either the macro society, national, provincial, or the micro society, the neighborhood, or the city, or the town. 
I've just got a swift last question for you, and it's this. You were talking earlier in this segment about the training or sensitization, shall we say, of people training for healthcare or social services and that kind of work. You are a prominent member of a prominent university's medical faculty. Um, do you see that training that you're calling for starting to uh, emerge in the universities to be applied and so on? Do you see it moving fast enough? What do you think? Well, I don't know what fast enough means. All I can say is when I started, there was none. <laughs> And in fact, now it's quite robust. Now, will the numbers ever catch up to our need? No. And that's for various reasons. So then you have to find alternative routes, and we're all doing that. So in addition to geriatricians, that's internal medicine, geriatric specialty, we've had for a number of years what we call care of the elderly coming out of primary care. Psychogeriatrics has just been approved as a subspecialty of, of um, psychiatry. So there are more and more ways that we're getting people in nursing, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists in the elderly, in agent. So we're now getting more and more people whose focus and interest is in the agent. And I'll say, look, I, I know you of T best because I work here, but I also know McMaster quite well because we're very close colleagues. And I certainly know enough about the Ontario University to say we're all doing it. I know a little bit about other Canadian because we, we share a lot. I don't know as much about the United States, but I'm assuming that it's happening there as well, depending on you know, which jurisdiction. So it's not as if it's not recognized. The question always is, well, what's the balance between that and other aspects of medicine? Right, right. And, you know, now, everybody's got their own particular interest. But aging yep. is universal. Yep, and good things are happening. Michael, unfortunately, this is we have to come to the end of this great episode. And I want to thank you very much for sharing with us your thoughts, your experience, your insights, and also your suggestions and your advice. And from this, the kind of influence that you're exercising um, to deal with the challenges of aging in all the ways that they, there's so many ways in which they present to society, to the people who are aging and to their family caregivers. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be starting an internet radio station by and for people living with blindness. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 